Thanks, Gabe, for the warm introduction, warm welcome. Like, I, like you said, Beth and I are uh, we're fresh out of Chicago. Sorry, I'm going to get set up here. We're excited to be here. We grew up in Wichita, uh, so we're, we grew up together, really, uh, in school and church. We went to the same uh, school from middle school all the way through high school, went to the same church, graduated from K-State. Any K-Staters here? Yes. That's what I like to hear. Gabe actually told me that was going to be a good plug, so uh, that's, uh, yeah, um, just shameless. Uh, but we moved to Chicago after, we lived here actually for two years, went to Christ Community. Uh, this was home. Then we moved to Chicago for school and work. Uh, we lived in Lincoln Park while we were there, so we lived in the city and really unexpectedly grew to love it. It was a really scary thing at first. Uh, we, growing up in Wichita, being in uh, the suburbs, our lives, all our lives, uh, being in the city was scary, but we really grew to love some aspects of it. And being here now, uh, downtown this morning, is, it's a breath of fresh air, because I grew to love the pace and the culture of the city, so we're really excited to be here with you. Uh, one thing I'll miss most, I think, about Chicago is the vibrant running culture that exists. Um, probably a, a close second to the, the great food. It's amazing. In fact, the running was probably the reason. I probably did that so I could eat the food, right? There's a sustaining that love. Uh, but it's, it's a big deal in Chicago year-round, but really in the spring and summer, there's thousands of Chicagoans who hit the lakeshore paths to enjoy the scenery, to maintain their fitness, and to train for races, for various races. And that's why I joined the Chicago running culture right away, is because I wanted to train for the Chicago Marathon. Are there any other crazy people here with us this morning who run marathons? No? No marathoners? All right, well, it is great. I was looking for something there, but no, nothing. Uh, a half, no, half marathon's great too, yeah. In Chicago, the, the marathon's a big deal. It draws over 40,000, I think there's 45,000 runners when I ran it. Up to 2 million people line the streets to watch it. It's really a big deal. And it's, amazing. it's an amazing event to, event to be at, to cheer them on, to run. Uh, I really enjoyed it. And anyone who's trained for a marathon or any race knows that uh, there's an intense training process involved. Uh, you can't just wake up one morning and say, I think I'm going to run 26.2 miles this morning. I mean, I guess you could, but someone like me, no way. I mean, a novice like myself has to engage in this training process. And one of the, big, one of the major components of the training process is building your endurance. You have to build up endurance because there's going to be a point when you're on, in the race that your body really needs, your body's going to be screaming at you, what are you doing? Why are you doing this to me? It's usually the 20-mile mark when you, your body starts to shut down. It qu- it's yelling at you to quit. It says, you know, all I could think about is how amazing it would be to go oh, quit and go join my wife who was eating donuts on the sidelines <laughs> watching me run, which... To her credit, you know, I was the one that decided to run, and she was there cheering me on early in the morning. But, you know, there is going to be a point during the race when endurance, when perseverance is going to be necessary. The race will get hard, and there's going to be tough stretches. And it's going to be necessary to endure if you want to cross the finish line. If you're in the race, you're going to have to persevere. And I found this analogy of running races really helpful for thinking about the journey of faith. The message of Hebrews echoes what is needed to finish a marathon. It's the author's continual pastoral plea in this book. Persevere to the end. 
Endure when things get really tough. Hold on to the faith. This is where we find the audience of this letter, too, tempted to throw in the towel, to go, to let go in the midst of the struggle, to abandon their faith and leave their life and religion with Jesus. And maybe that's some of you here this morning. Hebrews 3 continues this plea for perseverance, focusing in on our heart's responses to what God has said through his Son. And the author paints a picture of this perseverance of faith, and we'll see that he gives us an example from the past, a warning in the present, a warning for the present, and a hope for the future, if indeed God's people are to endure to the end, if they want to make it to the finish line. So let's go to God in prayer this morning and ask his blessing over our time in worship and his word. Father, it's an awesome privilege to come together as your body in worship through song and prayer and now as we open your word together. We ask that your spirit would come and move and soften our hearts to your voice, that we believe and be changed. I pray that whatever I say that's not of you would fall away and be quickly forgotten But where I speak your words after you, Father, would you work powerfully to transform hearts and minds. Come, Lord Jesus, be Lord over this time. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Before we jump into the text, let's take a quick look back at where we've been in Hebrews. If you've been with us the last three weeks, you'll remember that the author of Hebrews, who's unknown to us, is writing to a group of mostly Jewish Christians who, like I've already mentioned, are facing great hardship and temptation to walk away from the faith. The author has commended their perseverance thus far, but he's careful to caution them over and over again to hold fast to their confession of faith because Jesus is true and better. Chapter 1, we saw that Jesus is the final revelation, the definitive revelation of of God himself in in the Son, the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Two weeks ago, we encountered the first of five strong warnings, and it was two weeks ago, it was this warning against this exhortation to beware of subtle gospel drift, this drifting away from this confession of faith. And last week, we saw that Jesus was actually made just like us. He's the better humanity. Taken with chapter one, it's this, uh, Jesus is both nothing at all like us and just like us. So it's the amazing truth of God incarnate, divine and human. Indeed, he must be in order to save us from sin and death. So we come to chapter 3, and if you have a Bible this morning, whether in print or electronic form, go ahead and turn there. Chapter 3, I forgot to get from Gabe which page it is. Sorry. So I don't know what page it is, but Hebrews 3. The author continues to write this beautiful sermon with his pen in one hand and the Old Testament text in the other. And he leans on one Old Testament text in particular in this chapter to provide an example from the past. So look with me at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I sworn my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This quote from Psalm 95 points us back to the Exodus generation. 
and their wilderness wandering after God delivered them from the oppression in Egypt, led by God's servant Moses. It's a remembrance of God's activity on behalf of his chosen people. God used Moses in a gracious response to Israel's cries for help in the middle of oppression. But if you follow the story, it doesn't take long, to three days in the wilderness, in fact, for the people to continue their grumbling about these new problems, namely a lack of water and a lack of food, which are real problems, to be sure, but they already know that they serve a God with real solutions who has come through for them in the past. But God hears, hears them in his grace, hears their grumbling, and responds by making provision for their hunger and thirst, by satisfying them with sweet water and with bread from heaven. But as the narrative continues, the people keep grumbling, testing God in the wilderness. They quarrel with Moses. They question God's provision. And on the heels of his miraculous display of deliverance from Egypt and giving them food and water, they continue to grumble and they deny, they are denied rest in the promised land because of their disobedience. So look with me at verse 16 where the, where the author picks up again this story from the Exodus. It says, for who, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he promised? provoked, sorry, for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is where the psalmist picks up the story in in Psalm 95, describing their disbelief as hardness of heart, an outright rebellion against the voice of God. This is a, he points to this generation as a lesson from the past so that the present hearers can be warned against this disbelief. That generation died in the wilderness. They were denied rest in the promised land because of their disobedience. We'll talk more about God's rest in coming weeks, but what we can't miss this morning is the serious danger of responding to, to God's grace and deliverance with disbelief, with hearts that refuse to take God at his word. Death is the consequence of this hardness of heart. You see, the account of Exodus echoes the consistent witness of Scripture that salvation is not only a deliverance out of something, out of sin and death, but it's a deliverance into, into rest, into abundant life. This time in between these deliverances is the wilderness. It is indeed life in the wilderness. The wilderness will never be able to provide for our needs just like it couldn't provide food and drink for the Israelites. Only God is able to provide what is needed. And holding on in faith to what he's done in the past and what he promises to do in the future is the only way to flourish during this time in the wilderness, this time in between. Without faithful perseverance, wilderness wanderers will become hard and fall away from God in disbelief. The author uses this Old Testament history lesson to set the stage for a warning in the present, saying, look at this generation, how they experienced God's deliverance, witnessed his power, tasted his mercy, and threw it all away in rebellious disbelief. Don't be like them. Don't be like this generation. Look at verse 12 as we see this warning for the present. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is the second of five major warnings 
building on the first that we saw in 2, 1, 1 through 4 about the serious nature of gospel drift. Here's the warning. Here it's a warning against apostasy, against a falling away from the faith. And as we unpack it, this warning, we'll, we'll see three significant truths for our consideration. First, we see that disbelief is destructive. Disbelief is destructive. Look at the word here. It's, it's, it says, take care, beware, keep a watch. The root draws on sight language. Watch out, keep an eye on, pay close attention to. I recently got back from Colorado, a ski trip in Colorado, and as you're driving up the mountainside, uh, I constantly saw signs like these, which are encouraging signs, uh, especially that middle one, that moose that's going to completely demolish your car. Uh, these, these signs are a little unnerving when you see them at first, but that's the point. The point is watch out, pay close attention. And this warning in the text is far more serious than these even. Look at verse 12. It says, an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Let's work backwards with this phrase, this evil, unbelieving heart, beginning with the heart. In our common vernacular, the heart's usually used as the seat of your emotions or feelings. We say, follow your heart, you know, uh, listen to your heart. But in the Bible, there's a different understanding of this word heart. And Tim Keller, he summarized it really well. He says, but we must remember that in the Bible, the heart is not identical to emotions. The heart is understood as the place of your deepest commitments, trusts, and hopes. For those commitments flow, from those commitments flow our emotions, thoughts, and actions. The heart's a much more holistic thing, isn't it? It's, we're not talking about just where our, our emotions come from or our feelings. It's, it's where our, our intentions are. It's where our thoughts are. It's where our actions flow from. If this is true, then the warning is to keep a close eye on your deepest commitments, your deepest trusts and hopes, that they aren't running counter to God's heart. Now, the word here for unbelieving is where we get our English word apostasy, which is a turning away from or a forsaking of something that you previously held to be true. In this context, it appears that it's more than just doubting something or a lack or a deficiency of faith. Given the context with the wilderness generation, it seems like it's more of an, an active abandonment of faith, a turning away from, from faith where we've previously experienced God's grace in a way that call, calls us to embrace, embrace faith, to embrace God. It's, if the warning from 2, 1 through 4 is against subtle drift, this is against an active turning, which is further described as evil. I don't know about you, but I rarely think of evil and unbelief together in the same in the same sentence. It's kind of a strange. I mean, it's you don't think of lack of faith as being evil. Now, in fact, it's the only place in Scripture here where these two words are used together with the heart. This evil, unbelieving heart. And uh, you know, so what's the talk, the author talking about? I'm often helped by the rich theology and insight fi- found in the prayers of. The Puritans. There's a really great book, The Valley of Vision, that is a compilation of all these prayers. And I was reminded this week of what truly makes something evil. The portion of the prayer reads, Let me never forget that the heinousness of sin lies not so much in the nature of the sin committed as in the greatness of the person sinned against. So unbelief is rarely thought of as inherently evil, but we understand that it's a, when we understand that it's a direct refusal to take the Creator God at His word, rebellion immediately f- appears far more serious. This disbelief appears far more serious. And evil 
unbelieving heart is one that falls away from the living God. And the hardening of the heart from persistent refusal to listen to God's voice, disbelief begins to take root and finds its expression in disobedience. And disobedience to God's word, his revealed will, ultimately leads to distance from God. And to be separated from God is to be in the most dangerous place imaginable. Disbelief is indeed destructive. Second, we see in this warning that sin is deceptive. Sin is deceptive. Look at verse 13. Look at verse 13 with me. It says, But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin rarely comes to us bearing its teeth, right? It comes looking attractive. It comes looking inviting, promising, great benefit while hiding the empty consequences that, that come with sin. Listen for the deceptive statements from the serpent back in the garden in Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent's deceptive action begins very subtly, but moves to an outright contradiction of God's word, an accusation even of God's intentions. Sin approaches us in the same way, doesn't it? The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about the deceitfulness of sin, too. I really love Proverbs 9. There's a, a portion that that talks about the woman wisdom and the woman folly. And listen to how sin is personified. This is the message paraphrase. It says, Then there's this other woman, Madam Whore, brazen, empty-headed, frivolous. She sits on the front porch of her house on Main Street, and as people walk by, minding their own business, she calls out, Are you confused about life? Don't know what's going on? Steal off with me. I'll show you a good time. No one will ever know. I'll give you the time of your life but they don't know about all the skeletons in her closet, that all her guests end up in hell. Little do they know that the promises are empty. Not only are they empty, but they lead to death, to eternal distance from God. We've all experienced the lies that sin tells us, haven't we? Maybe they sound something like these. Just a little bit more. Just a quick peek. You can't live without me. It's not that big a deal. You deserve this. You need this. You'll be happier with me. You're not good enough. Who told you you were good enough? If anyone really knew you, they'd reject you. You've already done it once. There's no point in resisting now. Just one last time. These lies are empty, right? Do you feel the weight the emptiness of these lies? Do you know the deceitfulness of sin? Even as I was, just a, as a personal aside, even as I was preparing for this message, you know, this uh, pastor thing, this preaching is, is uh, you know, I'm new to this, and this last week, I felt these, the lies that sin, that sin wanted to tell me, and I believed some of them. Um, there's this, 
this sense that I, I was wrapping my identity up in, in who I am in my ministry and just who I am personally. And what happens when you believe these lies is your heart really does become hardened and you, you can't experience, feel, uh, taste the goodness of the gospel of grace. There's a, there's a sense in which you start becoming numb to both the glory and the weight of the gospel. When we give into these lies and meddle in sin, our hearts become hard. We develop a familiarity with sin that desensitizes us to it, causing us to fall farther and farther away from the living God. We must fight against the hardening effects of sin and its deceitfulness. But the question is, how do we do that? Look at the first half of verse 13. It points to the fact that community is imperative. Community is imperative. We need to exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. Pointing out the, the places where sin is lying to us and where we aren't trusting God's voice, like the wilderness wanderers in Exodus. We need, we need each other if we're going to persevere to the end. Now, exhortation involves both a charge and this, this comfort. There's, it's a, it's, there's a stern warning involved in exhortation, but there's also this tender care that's involved. It's a coming alongside of one another in community, speaking into each other's lives with grace and truth. I was reading the Bible with a guy in college who was not a believer. Uh, we, we were reading through this text, just, just getting in the Word together, and I asked him what he thought verses 12 and 13 were trying to say. And he sat, he sat there for a minute, gathered his thoughts, and then said very simply, I think Christians are supposed to help each other believe. And I wrote it down right away, you know, the name of the guy, help each other believe. Because I... I really sense the, the strength and the simplicity and the accuracy of that statement. I think that's what the author is getting at here. Helping each other believe involves both these stern warnings and these tender, this tender care. And no one modeled this kind of engagement with others like Jesus did himself in his ministry. But as we seek to counsel one another in the way of Jesus, there are some ways in which we need to be careful. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Life Together speaks of the tension that's necessary. He says, nothing can be more cruel than the tenderness that consigns another to his sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe rebuke that calls a brother back from the path of sin. This business of counseling one another must be done with discernment and wisdom, lest we confuse true compassion and love with careless consignment of our brothers and sisters to sin, to falling away from the living God. We need the mind of Christ when we encourage one another in this journey of faith, exhorting one another. So disbelief is destructive, sin is deceptive, and community is imperative. This warning pleads with us to persevere, and it's a sober one. But there is hope. We have hope for a bright future, hope that we can indeed get to the finish line. Read with me verses 1 through 6. It says, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things 
that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. So who is this? Who is Jesus? He is our great hope for the future because he is true and better. In chapter 3, we see a little bit more. We've seen who Jesus is already some in, in Hebrews, but in chapter 3, we get a, a little fuller picture. It says he is apostle and high priest. Jesus is the word from God. This apostle is, also means messenger. He's this word from God and the way to God. We've already seen this. Jesus is final, the final, perfect, definitive revelation of God in the world, and he's the one able to make us right with God. And this is the core of the gospel message, that Jesus came in the incarnation to be like us so that he could save us, that we could be made right with God. This is good news. And Jesus and Moses are similar in this passage in their faithfulness, but Jesus is depicted as being greater. He is worthy of more glory he is, the great, he is greater as the Son, and he is a greater leader. You see, as great as Moses was as a faithful servant of God's people, the Exodus generation fell in the wilderness because of disbelief, because their hearts were hardened and they refused to take God at his word. But Jesus is the Son, greater than Moses, the one who is able to deliver his people from slavery to sin and death and deliver them into true and ultimate rest of abundant life in him. And during this dangerous time in between, we can rest in the hope that we are his people, his house, if we persevere to the end. Now this little word, if, carries huge implications, right? There's a conditional there. Only the one, only the ones who hold firmly to the end, who persevere to the finish line, have truly come to share in Christ. So how do we live into this tension? How do we hold on to the faith, avoid the heart-hardening effects of sin and deceitfulness? Let's press into this issue of our hearts, the, the issues that we're facing in our hearts this morning, with just two questions to consider as we close. First, what are the lies that attack your heart? What are the lies that you, that you, that you hear from sin all the time, that you are constantly being tempted to believe, even though you know that they're empty? Has your heart become hard toward God or others this morning? There are so many competing voices in this world that vie for our attention. It can subtly steal away our hearts, our deepest commitments, hopes, and trusts. I encourage you, even, even now in these moments, as you've thought about the deceitfulness of sin and these lies, just to confront some of these lies and maybe just write some down. If, if some of those that I read earlier resonated or if you've been thinking about different areas of your life where you hear the deceitfulness of sin, identify it and counter it with truth from the gospel. If you've entrusted your life to Christ, your sin's been nailed to the cross and forgiven in full and you can walk in newness of life. Pray that God would grant you a soft heart this morning to receive his grace and walk by faith. Second, who can help you believe? Or who can you help believe? Do you have in your life people that you can encourage to persevere in the faith? Do you have in your life people who are encouraging you to persevere in the faith? How can you come alongside others in this faith journey and encourage them? This means listening well to others, 
disappointments, hurts, hopes, fears, joys, or questions. This involves speaking the truth in love to a brother or sister that's falling away from God. It involves meeting regularly with with the body of Christ, like meetings this morning or meeting in smaller groups, to worship, to serve. How can you help others persevere in the wilderness this time in between, this week even? Probably the greatest joy of running in the Chicago Marathon for me was running with Team World Vision, which was a group uh, founded by World Vision. that They have teams all over the country that run together. They compete in these marathons, raise money for clean water. It's a great, it's a great thing to be a part of. And I, we gathered every Saturday morning and ran these, our long runs together. So 15, 16, 18-mile runs with this group. And I would not have been able to do to do the training even, but I definitely wouldn't have been able to finish the race, especially when I hit those 20-mile wall marks. I wouldn't have been able to finish it without that group of people. I wouldn't have been able to cross the finish line without their help. And so it is, I think, in the community of faith. We need one another to help each other believe, to guard our hearts against the lies that we hear about sin, and to comfort each other when life in the wilderness gets hard. We direct each other to the hope that we have in Jesus, our true and better leader, the one who can deliver us from our brokenness and into ultimate rest in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this beautiful morning and for the truths, the beautiful truths that we say.